Hey everyone, this is Anthony Fleming, Senior Pastor of Church Alive, praying that this message is fresh, real, and powerful in your mind, your heart, your family, every part of your life. If you enjoy these messages, subscribe to it, share it with a friend to build their faith. God bless you as you lean in to the power and presence of God's Word. My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors on team here at Church Alive, and I'm so excited to have you with us today as we kick off our new series, our new summer series called Hot Weekends. Would you join with me and stand up? We're going to read a passage of scripture and pray before we get into the word today. And we also want to welcome those who are watching online as well. And can we honor our lovely stage managers who are just so excellent at everything they do. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. So Father, we thank you today that you were magnified in this place, and I thank you, Lord, that your presence is here. I pray, Father God, Lord, that you would touch every single heart, every single mind, every single soul. I pray, Father God, for the hearts that are hurting, that they'd find comfort. I pray, Lord Jesus, that for people that feel just lost on the inside, that God, they would find a firm foundation today. Lord, we give you all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. You can be seated, and thank you so much, worship team. You guys are phenomenal. Have you ever noticed that when there's a lot of rules, it can kind of be hard to keep up with all of them, and sometimes you get caught off guard by them? Driving. I mean, think of how many rules there are with driving, right? Years and years ago, before I was really active in church, I was driving and talking on the cell phone when I was in college. I got pulled over, and the cop was over, and he's like, you know, you're talking on the phone. I say, yeah, you know, and he's like, well, you've got a tinted license plate cover. So I'm going to give you a ticket for that instead. I'm like, okay. I was like, but I bought it at AutoZone in North Arlington. He goes, just because you bought it doesn't mean it's legal. <laughs> and I went, touche. And he laughed, and I got out of a ticket because I said touche, just so you know. So in Scripture, though, we see that God gave us the law. So through Moses, God gave us the, ru the rules, in essence, or the way in which we were going to live a godly life. There were 613 laws that God gave us through Moses. Seems like a lot, isn't it? But what we see, though, is that underlying these laws, there's a principle at work. So in Matthew chapter 22, we see a group of Jewish leaders called the Pharisees, and they're coming to test Jesus. These are men who are characterized by strict, rigid observance of these 600 and some odd laws. And there was also another group called the Sadducees who observed the law, but in slightly different ways. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were always kind of trying to one-up each other on who knew more, who did the law better, and things like that. So the Pharisees had heard that the Sadducees got one up by Jesus, and they wanted to have a go at it. And it says in Matthew chapter 22, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and all the prophets. So isn't it incredible? You look at this, there's 613 laws that were given to us, and yet when you say to Jesus, what's the most important one out of all of them? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. Because everything else flows out of this principle. Isn't that interesting? We use the word love in many different ways, don't we? 
You might say something like, I love pizza. How many people love pizza? Amen. Right? Pizza's good. But for those of you who raise your hand who are married, how many of you also love your spouse? Okay, this guy right here loves his spouse, my man, right? Hopefully, you love Patricia a little differently than you love pizza. We use the same word for love, but hopefully there's a little bit of a difference between the way you honor your wife and you honor a plate of food, right? And so in the Greek, we also see that this same concept also happens. And in the New Testament, we see that there are four different words different Greek words that we translate as love. So there's different ways that we talk about love in scripture. Three of them are this, eros love. That is the romantic love. That is the butterflies in your stomach, stars in your eyes. Oh my goodness, I can't get enough of you love, right? Storge love is the familial love. It is the love that you feel for a sibling. It is the love that you feel for the people in your family. And you know that that love is inherently different than the way that you romantically love another person, right? And the same thing with philia. It is the warm affection or friendship love. And all of those are different. And I think when we put it into that context, we can kind of see that there are these different loves that we see in our life. But there's another one in Scripture. And that's the one that I want to talk about today. And it is the word agape. So in Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus says love, he is meaning, he is using the word, the Greek word, Agape. So what is agape love? What is this love that Jesus says is the greatest commandment in all the law? This agape love. When the word agape is used in the Bible, it refers to a pure, willful, sacrificial love that intentionally desires another's highest good. It is the fatherly love of God for humans, as well as the human reciprocal love for God. Isn't that incredible? So this agape love that you and I feel, it is love that comes down from heaven. It is a love that is solely reserved for our relationship with God. You notice how it does not have in this definition that agape love is between us. No, it's actually love that God has for us first, and then because it's working on the inside of us, it is love that is reciprocated back to him. It is a very different type of love than any of these other three that you and I experience on a daily basis. But this is the thing. When we talk about God's love, we're not just talking about a character trait of his that's dependent on how things are going at work or how things are going during the week or what kind of mood you're in on a given day. When we talk about the love of God, we're talking about what he is. It's not a character trait. It is not something that he just decides to do. It is actually emanating from his persona. It is what he is is love. And so that is what is poured out to us in this agape love. Have you ever noticed that the things around you influence you, though? They do, right? When I, I used to work at a music store, and the manager of the store's name was Joe, and no matter what you said to him, you could have brought in your guitar, smashed it to 2,000 pieces, and be like, Joe, I ran over it with a truck. He would just go, bummer. That was all you got out of him. It was always bummer. And guess what? To this day, I still say bummer. And also, when I was younger, when I was in high school, I used to listen to like a lot of death metal and go to those concerts with the crazy mosh pits and everything like that. And so I gauged my ears because my ex-girlfriend started doing it. And now I bear with me the marks of teenage years on the outside while most of us just have them on the inside. <laughs> you start to look like what's around you. The type of music you listen to influences the way you dress and what you wear and what you say. And same thing with TV. Same thing with even the ethnic culture that you grew up in, right? But it's not just the stuff that's around you 
that seems to change who you are, you're really shaped by what you love. Or more importantly, I should say, you're shaped by who you love. I met my wife 12 years ago. My wife is Brazilian. Any Brazilians in the house this morning? <laughs> Loud and proud, baby. When I met Amanda, I didn't speak Portuguese. And I can kind of speak Portuguese now. I sound like a hot mess, but I get my point across. Like, people get what I mean. I, um, I cook better rice than she does. She will admit it. This is not me throwing my wife under the bus. This has been acknowledged in my family. I make better rice than my wife. And now it's gotten to the point where it's like, if I go three or more days without having rice and beans, a hoisin feijão, I'm like, I need real food. I can't eat like this anymore. I need rice and beans and some sort of protein. <laughs> Love has shaped my character. It has shaped what I like. If Eros love can shape us like that, how does agape love do it then? What does it look like when we're shaped by that love that's sacrificial and is responding to God? It's going to look a little bit different. The Apostle Paul spends a really significant portion of the letter, the first Corinthians letter in chapter 13, and he's talking about love. And if you've ever been to a wedding, this is the love chapter. This is the wedding scripture that you'll very often hear. But the word, the love that the Apostle Paul is talking about here is agape love. It's not eros love. It's not any of those other loves. And he says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not agape love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not agape love, I gain nothing. And he says this, love is patient and kind. Agape love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Agape love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Then he says at the end in verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is agape love. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? Why does God care about what's going on in your heart when there are 613 laws you're supposed to follow? Why is it that King Solomon in Proverbs tells you to guard your heart above everything else when there's rules to be followed? And why is it that the Apostle Paul talks about spiritual gifts and other powerful fruit of a faith life with Jesus, and yet he says, all of these things are meaningless if I don't have this agape love. It is because agape love is what orients, shapes, and protects our identities by going straight for the core of who we are, our heart. We cannot have a wrong view of who we are and flourish in our faith. So the title of my message today is Walking in Faith. And my big thought that I want to give you is that love is what empowers you to grow in your God-given identity. This agape love is what empowers you to grow in your God-given identity. See, look, there's many, there's many practical ways that we could talk about walking by faith or walking in faith. If you just Google it, you're going to find 30 websites that have three points on them and more or less are three flavors of the same exact thing. But 
there's, there's a difference and a different approach that you and I can take today. Because when we talk about walking by faith, we first need to talk about what's going on on the inside of you, not so much what you're doing on the outside of you. Does that make sense? Because when the root of our identity is in Christ, we are able to truly walk by faith when the difficult times come. Because this is the thing, and this is the reality. You could learn to do things a different way. Right? You could learn to do things a different way, or you could want to do things a different way. You could desire to do things a different way, right? And that is the real goal of what we're talking about today. So I want to look at a man from the Old Testament named Joseph in the book of Genesis. I want to look at his life. I want to look at some of the things that he endured that are so similar to what you and I experience. And I want to look at how did he have this Agape love present. How did it form him? How did it shape him? And how did it change his decision-making process along the way? So some stuff you should know about Joseph. Joseph was the youngest of 12 brothers. He was the baby boy, and he was the favorite. And guess what? Dad didn't even hide it. Everybody knew he was the favorite. So like, kind of like a tip for parents, even if you have a favorite, don't tell them. Because all of his brothers hated him for it. Joseph had favor in the sight of his father. It was abundantly obvious. We don't know much about his life before he was about 17 years old. And interestingly enough, there is historical evidence in Egyptian history that talks about a man. His name was not exactly Joseph. He was named Bea. But there is this man in Egyptian history that is well documented that carries all of the hallmarks of the story of Joseph. So we see outside of the Bible confirmation that this man, this entity existed, and it's really incredible. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit later, but there was a famine in Egypt at the time that Joseph was there, and that specific famine is also historically documented. So it's kind of cool that this is not just a story, that this is history that we're reading here, right? And the interesting thing about Joseph is that the Bible speaks more highly of Joseph than any other man except Jesus. Think about it. You have all of these great men in the Bible that did tremendous things, but they had issues, didn't they? You know, look at King David. He was a man after God's own heart and a murderer. Seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between the two, right? And we see that consistently throughout many of the men in Scripture. And yet, Joseph is spoken of in such high regard, and that's one of the reasons why I want to look at some of his story, and I want to unpack it a little bit with you this morning as we're talking about walking in faith with this agape love. So we're going to catch up with him in the beginning of his story in Genesis chapter 37. It says this, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So they already hated him because he was the favorite, and now he's going to tell them this dream, and they're going to hate him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are, are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more. They're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're already the favorite. What is wrong with you? You think I'm going to bow to you? I hate you. Dad already loves you more than me, and now you want me to bow to you? Mm. I'm not doing that. He has another dream where he dreams about stars, and it's very similar in nature, except the number of stars bowing to him is different. So when he tells his brothers, but also his parents about his dream, his parents start to clue in, and they're like, wait, wait a minute, boy, you think I'm going to bow down to you? 
His father, Scripture says, kept it in mind. But this is what's going on. Joseph has these two very distinct dreams that God has given him that something incredible is going to happen and that his family, in essence, are going to bow to him. But he has no clue how this is going to happen. A short time later, we see his brothers are out in the field tending to the flocks. So his father sends Joseph to go and check on his brothers and see what's going on. And they say this in verse 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Here comes the dude who thinks I'm going to bow down to him. Come now, let us kill him and let us throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into the pit. And the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. That's a bad day. You just go to check on your brothers, you might know that they don't like you, and all of a sudden they're smacking you around, taking your clothes off, and throwing you into a hole in the ground. <laughs> that escalated quickly. <laughs> His brothers, did it. they said they were going to kill him, but they didn't kill him yet. They threw him into the pit, and like you would see in a movie or something like that, all of a sudden now they don't know what to do. So what do they do? They have dinner. They're trying to plan. They're like, what are we going to do? We're about to wipe out dad's favorite kid. He's going to hate me even more or be upset. They're trying to sort out what's going to happen. And at this time, where they lived was a significant trade route. It was like a highway. And so many different types of materials that were being brought from the eastern portions of the world over into the Mediterranean area, northern Africa area, were passing through this area. So they see a group of these traders come by, and it's like light bulb, and they're like, oh, this is great. We don't have to kill them. We could just sell them to these guys, and then we'll just tell Dad that oh, something happened to him. No big Deal. So in verse 28, it says, The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Have you ever felt rejected? Have you ever felt abandoned? Have you ever felt like everything fell apart in a number of hours one day? Joseph just experienced the same thing. I experienced something like this in gym class. When I was in grammar school, I, uh, let's just say I wasn't the most excellent athlete. And they would pick two team captains, and they would pick one by one by one. I was always the last to get picked, and the captains would fight over who had to have me. <laughs> and then the gym teacher would be like, Steve, just go on this team. I'd be like, okay, I'll go on this team, right? And then like if it was like dodgeball, I would just stand in the back and just wait to get hit. And I'd be like, wow, look at that. I'm out. Oh, no. You know, like I didn't care one bit. It was horrible, right? <laughs> but maybe you have a story that's more significant than just getting embarrassed in front of a bunch of sixth graders. <laughs> we all experience something like that, and it marks us. The Bible is silent about Joseph's experience while he was in the pit and when he got sold. You notice this. When Joseph got to see his brothers, we don't see anything about what he said to them. We don't see anything about how he reacted when they were beating him, when they were ripping off his robe that his father had given to him as a gift. We don't see, like, did he cry? Did he fight back? Did he get angry? Did he get sad? What happened when he was in the pit? What was he feeling? We're not clued in to any of that. But we get a clue when he actually arrives in Egypt. Because wouldn't most of us be tempted to just fall into a victimhood mentality, right? 
You thought everything was kind of going good. Maybe you knew your brothers didn't like you that much. And then in one day, in a matter of minutes, you are stripped of your favor. You are thrown into a pit. And then a couple hours later, the people who love you and are supposed to care for you sell you for not that much money into slavery. I don't know about you, but I would be having a hard time with that. But he had had these dreams that God had given him. And these dreams were going to be the fuel, this agape love that he felt for God, that he was receiving from God through the gift of dreaming, was going to be what would fuel him through all of these difficult circumstances. Because let's catch up with him in, in chapter 39. He's in Egypt, and now let's see what it says. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. Does that happen on accident? No. Do you just sit around upset, feeling defeated, and all of a sudden favor and success just pours out on you? No, especially if you're a slave. He became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. In the light of rejection, in the light of abandonment, Joseph got to work because he knew that God was doing something, and he knew that something was going to change in his future. He got to work. And it says, so, verse 4, So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him as master, and his master made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So how do you walk by faith when you're rejected? When you feel like you've been abandoned by your family, by your friends, simply we keep our eyes on Jesus. That is what we do. Remember, Jesus was rejected by men for our sake, and yet because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to tell you this morning, I want to remind you if you've forgotten, and I want to tell you if you don't know, that God loves you with a love that is not defined by any earthly relationship, not arrows, not storge, not philia, but with this agape love by which he holds you. So how do we walk by faith with this agape love? We remember that we are accepted and cherished by Jesus. Accepted doesn't mean that you don't change. Accepted means that by his blood, the sins that you did that separated you from him have been atoned for. So he brings you into his presence, and then he cherishes you. Do you have something that you cherish? Maybe it's a memory. Maybe it's like a bracelet from your grandmother, or it's some family heirloom or Something like that. Maybe it's a video. Maybe it's a picture. And it just reminds you of something precious to you. It gives you comfort. It gives you peace. Do you realize that Jesus Christ cherishes every single one of us? Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Amen. So now, he has been rejected. He has been abandoned. And now, it seems like things are going pretty well. He's gotten successful. He's in his master's house but now he starts to deal with something that all of us deal with, temptation. So in Genesis 39, it says this, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Ladies, he was good to look at. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. Get this. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except for you, because you are his wife. 
How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he wouldn't listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. When temptation came his way to do something that was physically off limits, he said something to her that I think so. He said, this, my master has given me everything in this house. I have access to every single thing but you. So you know what that means to me? Hands off. That's not mine. He recognizes this, but notice what he says. I cannot do this great wickedness and sin against my master. No, he says against God. This agape love that has formed him, these dreams that he have had that have formed him, have caused in him this kind of moral compass. He seems to know and recognize and say, no, 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 she's your wife. I am not going to step out of the bounds of what is healthy. It is not permissible for me to do so. You notice he says it's a sin against God. The law wasn't given yet. Those 613 laws that God gave through Moses, they didn't exist yet. And yet he still recognized that if he were to do this thing, it would be a sin. Look, all of us are tempted. Every single one of us are tempted. I don't care if you're single. I don't care if you're dating. I don't care if you're engaged. I don't care if you're confused. And I don't care if you've been married for 30-something years. Temptation will come. Temptation will come in various forms and in various ways in various times. It will come against you. And I'm not even just talking about physical temptation, to do something outside of the permitted boundaries of a matrimony between one man and one wife, right? I am not talking about that, just that. I am talking about that. But I'm also talking about the temptation to just go back to toxic relationships that you got rid of because you knew they were breaking you. I'm talking about the temptation to go back into addictions that you had defeated because you think you're strong enough now to be around it again. I'm talking about temptation in all its forms, in all of its ways that try to get to us. And get this. He is honoring God. He is honoring his master. And she gets so mad at him, she makes up a story that he attacked her. And guess what? His master throws him in jail. So guess what? That rejection, that abandonment happens again. And actually for doing the right thing. And now, if you and I were in his position, I would be thinking to myself, God, what do you want? I am living my life for you. I almost died. I got sold into slavery. I'm doing the right things. I won't even do that. And now I'm in jail again? Now I don't know what's going to happen again? What is going on here? But we see that that doesn't happen with Joseph. What do you and I do when we are feeling tempted? Again, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. And it is because he experienced it. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, and we are yet without sin. He accomplished all of the law perfectly for his entire life. And that is why when he died and when he shed his blood, it was the perfect atonement for sin. It was the once and all atonement so that you and I, when we put our faith in Jesus, can be made in right standing with God. And it is because he experienced all of this temptation. And yet he didn't succumb to it. Jesus exists interceding for you and I all of the time. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't take lunch breaks, and you don't get his out of office sometimes when you pray. He is always there, existing eternally at the right hand of our Father in heaven. Because his sacrifice was perfect, 
So now when we pray to him, and that's why we pray in the name of Jesus, he hears our prayer, and as our great high priest, the in-between between us and God the Father, he hears our prayer, and he says, Lord, my blood has covered it and atoned for it. Hear my prayer. And then God looks at him and says, that is acceptable to me. Does that make sense? He has been tempted in every way, so you and I can relate to him to find strength for it. So how do we walk by faith in this agape love to deal with temptation? We need to hate sin, and we need to love God. We need to hate sin and love God. So often we have a little bit too cozy of a relationship with certain sin. We try to excuse it, or we, we just, it kind of happens, and we just try to do better. What would it look like if we actually hated the things that separate us from God? What would it look like if you got a poor taste in your mouth every single time something happened that was a habitual sin for you? There was this medicine, I remember years ago, I was talking to somebody who was trying to quit smoking, and he took this prescription medicine. And I remember I said to him, how is this working for you? And he's like, I don't know, I'm still smoking, but every time I smoke, it tastes awful, and I hate it. And I'm like, when are you going to stop? He goes, I don't know, I don't hate it that much yet. <laughs> Agape love is the prescription so that when you and I sin, we get the bad taste in our mouth. And not that we keep tasting it bad and bad and bad, but that even more we taste it, it gets worse to the point where we don't want it anymore. Because notice something. He was abandoned. He was rejected. He was tempted. But through all of this, and this wasn't like in four days. This is like a de decent time period that Joseph is experiencing this. And yet, he doesn't change. That's one thing that's striking. He doesn't change. That to me tells me he has this agape love on the inside. It is the firm foundation because when life throws anything at him, he knows his source, he knows his father, and he knows what God is doing because he's had those dreams. He was rejected, he was abandoned, and he was tempted, but he was also successful. You and I will struggle with this from time to time. You see, what happened was while he was in jail, he correctly interpreted the dreams of two of Pharaoh's right-hand men who were in jail at the time. And he said to them, when you get out, could you please just remember to tell Pharaoh, please tell him about me. I've been in here for a while. Two years later. Say that, two years later. Pre-COVID to now, my man's been sitting in jail and these guys have been out of jail. And then all of a sudden, Pharaoh has a dream and nobody can interpret it. And this guy that was in jail with Joseph goes, oh my gosh, do you remember? There was that guy in jail and he, he interpreted my dream and he was right. And, and, and he told us to remember him, but I'm remembering him now. Okay, that's good. So Pharaoh, get this guy, because he's gonna give you what you need. Pharaoh summons Joseph and Joseph correctly interprets his dream for him. And Pharaoh says this to him. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne, I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have sent you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took the signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and he called out before him, bow the knee and thus he sent him over all the land of Egypt Pharaoh was a god in the eyes of the Egyptian 
He was God in human flesh. That was how they viewed the pharaohs. There was a succession of pharaohs. It was not a democracy. They didn't vote for the next God. That's not how it worked. Do you realize how significant this is? They took a man who was not an Egyptian, who was born outside of Egypt, who had absolutely no trace of being an Egyptian. And yet the God of the Egyptians took him and made him king over all of them. Second in line to only the God. That is crazy. That is absolutely crazy. And that is the favor that Joseph enjoyed because of the blessing that God had on his life. Pharaoh said in verse 44, Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or a foot in all of Egypt. Crazy. He had complete dominion over one of the most powerful nations in the world at the time. And at the time, there was a great famine going on in all of the land like I talked about before, and Joseph's success would be pivotal. But you know what we don't see as the story develops, after he's made number two, and as the famine is approaching, and they're starting to make preparations for it in Egypt? We don't see a moment. Pharaoh just said, you have authority over absolutely everybody, right? He even said to him, my people shall order themselves as you command. We don't see a moment where Joseph said, go, get me the captain of the army and his 10 most able strength-bodied men. I have a mission. Behold, I have heard that there was a family in Canaan consisting of 12 brothers, and the youngest tragically died in an accident. I desire that you go find those men and bring them to me because I want to bless them. He never used his power to get revenge on the brothers that left him for dead. He spent time pouring out. What does agape love do? It comes out, it blesses you from up high, and we reciprocate it to love. It, we reciprocate it to God. And as we're worshiping God, the overflow of it is it comes out from us into the people who are around us. Joseph never used his success to exact revenge because haven't you noticed success can go to your head? Oh my goodness. I have had it in my career where I got a promotion. If you worked with me in 2013, I am so sorry for you. I was so obnoxious, oh my goodness. I got promoted, I had a nice title on a very big project and it went straight to my head. And I strutted my stuff like I was the senior environmental, blah, blah, blah. it was horrible. But I've even experienced it in ministry where pride has crept in, where the success of ministry has crept in. And thank God I have wise people in my life that love me, that have been willing to point out the areas in which I, am, I can't even see that I need help in. Success gets to your head. Jesus was tempted with success as well. Jesus was tempted with success. And the, when he was tempted by the devil, when he came out from the wilderness, we see that one of the temptations was the devil said, I will give you all the nations of the world. You will have dominion over all of the planet if you will fall down and if you will worship me. Jesus refused to do so and he countered him with the word. In another instance, after Jesus fed the 5,000, a miraculous moment where he split a loaf and a couple fish and he fed 5,000 men and probably about 10,000 women and children on a day. Scripture tells us that when this was done, the people, the Jewish people that had just experienced this wanted to make him king by force. They were saying to themselves, I am under Roman rule, I am hungry, and now this guy comes from God and he starts feeding me and he starts doing these miracles. He is going to be my king and he is not leaving here 
until he is my king. And what did Jesus do when that temptation came? He threw the disciples in a boat and pushed them out into the middle of a storm that would terrify them so they wouldn't get tempted by his potential success. And he retreated into the wilderness to pray by himself for hours so that he wouldn't succumb to the earthly success of man. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So how do we walk by faith with this agape love? We need to resist pride and continue to point our eyes to Jesus. When we have this God-centered perspective from this agape love, you see what it does? It changes our perspective on our problems, rejection, abandonment, temptation, success, and anything else. It changes our perspective on those things by changing our perspective of ourselves. That is what agape loves. It shapes you, it hones you, and it has you standing on the firm foundation. After the famine was going on and everybody recognized and his brothers came back, I wish I had more time, but I can't go through the entire story of Joseph today. I would encourage you to read it. But at the end of everything, Joseph said in Genesis verse 50, uh, chapter 50, verse 20, he said this, as for you, you meant evil against me, speaking to his brothers, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph recognized that through the whole process, God was there, and that what man meant for evil, God was intending for good. And I want to end with this thought today, though. A life filled with faith and strong identity is wired to look beyond itself. Get this, after everything that Joseph had gone through in Egypt, after all of the blessing, after all of the ups and the downs and the roller coasters and everything like that, when we look at Hebrews chapter 11, it is like the hall of fame of faith. It is looking at all of the great men of the old and saying, what did they do? What was the one thing that characterized faith in their life? And out of all the stuff that Joseph did, out of all of the story that we saw today, the author of the book of Hebrews says this, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave orders, directions concerning his bones. Wait a minute. Out of all of the incredible things that Joseph did, the thing that characterized his faith the most was something that hadn't even happened yet. It is because this agape love forces us to look beyond ourselves. Joseph knew that God had a plan and that it was bigger than what he could see. You know how easy it would have been for him to say to them, guys, you got it good here. Don't worry about going back to Canaan. Don't worry about the promised land. You got it good here. I got it in with the guy. Just stay here. Make yourselves a home. Be fruitful. Multiply here. Take care of it. But he didn't. And when he gave orders concerning his bones, he said to them in verse 24 and verse 50, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He said, guys, this is not your home. God has something bigger for you. God has something greater for you. What he was saying was, don't settle for less. Don't settle for less. And what I'm saying to you today is the same. There is more. Don't settle for less. Walk in faith, embracing this agape love that God has poured out on you. 
and allow it to be what forms your identity so when temptation comes, when rejection comes, when abandonment comes, when doubt comes, when confusion comes, when success comes, doesn't shift who you are, but it helps inform how you act. Pastor Magno introduced a chorus today, and I couldn't believe the striking similarity between it and the end of my message. We believe in you, our God, the truth. We believe Christ is your son, the way. I believe your Holy Spirit, the life, and this is our faith. We believe your crucifixion, debt paid. We believe your resurrection that saves, and we believe you are coming back one day. This is our faith. It's a faith that looks past what we see now. It's a faith that is expected for the future. It is a faith that understands that eternity awaits us when we breathe our last year on earth. I'm going to ask you today to close your eyes and bow your heads with me. If you've never made the conscious decision to surrender the ownership of your life to Jesus, if you don't know what eternity holds for you in this place today, I want to make an invitation to you. In a moment, we're going to say a prayer. It is not the prayer that saves you. It is not the order of the words that saves you. It is your heart receiving this agape love from God and your spirit that is dead in your sin and your transgressions coming alive because of the presence of the Holy Spirit within you. It is being born again today. And I believe that in this moment, God is drawing hearts to him now in this place and even those watching online. And we're going to say this prayer together. And if you feel that conviction, if you feel that pulling on your heart, if you feel God moving on you, you say this prayer with all of your heart and make yourself right with God by the posture of your heart towards Him. So let's say this together. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner, that I am separated from You. But I believe that by Your life, by Your death, and by Your resurrection, I am forgiven. Holy Spirit, live in me. Holy Spirit, guide me. And Holy Spirit, protect me all the days of my life. Today, Lord, my heart is completely yours. In Jesus' name. And if you said that prayer in this place with your eyes closed and your heads bowed still. If you said that prayer in this place, I'm going to ask you to slip up your hand so I can celebrate with you. One, two, and three. I see your hand, my friend. I see your hand there as well. I see your hand. I see that one over there, all the way in the back over there. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that eternity changed in this place. Thank you, Father, that you drew hearts to you. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for bringing the conviction of sin that leads to salvation. Father God, we give you all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. I thank you, God, that we can live and walk by faith. And it is because we have received this agape love. And it is because it is the love of God that shapes, that transforms, that prunes. And that is the firm foundation that we stand on. So, God, we give all of the love back to you. And I pray, God, that in the process of us worshiping you and growing closer to you, Lord, that this love that we have on the inside, Father God, that it would bleed out into the people who are around us, into our families, into our communities, into our transform groups, and that God, above all else, the name of Jesus would be magnified by the way that we live. Lord, we give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning.